0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, we'll explore a fascinating initiative that has increasingly become an important consideration for C-suite executives and investors, environmental, social, and corporate governance, or ESG. To help us put ESG into perspective, including what it means, how it will change the business and investing landscape, and where it intersects with the tax function, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, Brett Weaver and Matt McNeil. Brett is a partner in KPMG's international tax value chain management practice and was recently named the US tax lead of KPMG Impact, KPMG's suite of data-driven solutions to help clients enhance their ESG performance while also fulfilling the firm's own ESG commitments matt is a managing director in kpmg's international tax value chain management practice and leads the tax strategy and governance consulting services within the u.s kpmg tax impact team brett and matt welcome to the podcast thanks gary nice to be with you good to be with you gary brett what is ESG, and why should any of our listeners care about it, other than the fact that they are all such good and virtuous people?
1: (laughs) Well, that inherent characteristic will certainly draw people to ESG. Yeah, it it is, uh, as we all know, over the course of the last 12 months in particular, it's kind of a, a big deal, right? We're getting much of the corporate world that's focused on ESG, and we're certainly seeing that from a political standpoint as well. It's always good to start out with what does the acronym mean ESG is environmental social and governance and it really is all about you know companies focusing on a more sustainable approach to business with with a, a growing view that you know a focus on environmental concerns on social impact and good corporate governance is really critically important to long-term sustainable approach to business and those companies that are ignoring any of those big three pillars are setting themselves up for some pretty significant risk you know in the mid to long term and and i think that's one of the reasons we're seeing so much attention paid to these issues, that responsible behavior by corporations, you know, the impact we're seeing from an environmental standpoint, just generally, and all the attention we have in popular media on that, as well as a lot of the social changes we've seen, all of those things are converging at the right time to put a very significant focus on ESG.
0: Brett, if we think about environmental, social, and governance as three dimensions or buckets of corporate activity, What objectives are generally promoted by and what are some examples of the risks and opportunities that align with each?
1: There are certainly skeptics out there that uh, why are we paying all this attention to ESG matters? Doesn't that really take away from the bottom line? And I think specifically your question, what are the risks and opportunities, right? Let's just take one of those pillars. As we look at the environmental side, there's been a, a number of countries and standard setters, for example, that are starting to raise questions of you know companies where some of their principal assets are carbon assets, uh, you know, in the ground, for example, and are they going to be worth anything five or ten years from now? So you you have those kinds of potential risks. You you have you know companies that look at their existing supply chain may be very reliant on basically carbon inputs. Right? We're seeing action from Europe that is going to tax much more heavily products that are high carbon versus those that are lower carbon. So you can start to see potential advantages there from a pricing structure, maybe even preferences from consumers, right? From a company in the same industry that may invest significantly in having a cleaner supply chain, versus someone who's really kind of more uh, old school on the supply chain, right, where they may be in a position to benefit from lower taxes on bringing products in, into Europe and other countries that may go a similar direction. And they may also have a stronger level of patronage from a growing constituency of consumers who really value companies that are paying attention you know, to these issues. And I think you could say the same about you know the social pillar and the governance pillar is we think about some of the things in social such as you know board diversity equal pay you know across genders etc you know so there there's a number of those issues which again are very important to stakeholders and there's a view that companies that are focusing on you know on, on these social issues right are going to be much better positioned to innovate and to challenge their competitors and to deliver services and goods that uh, their consumers are interested in buying and have a preference for The same thing about good governance and acting responsibly but i i think that's really where where companies who are all in on these issues are seeing risks of not doing anything and some significant opportunities by being first movers
0: in june of this year the wall street journal reported that at the end of 2019 around 17 trillion dollars was being managed following some kind of sustainable investing strategy, or by firms that addressed ESG-related issues and filed shareholder resolutions. That was roughly one-third of assets being professionally managed in the US. The first quarter of 2021 saw an approximately net $21 billion in new investments into mutual funds, taking similar approaches. Most importantly, the third quarter of 2021 saw an influx of $1,000 of my own funds into an ESG mutual fund. Brett, can you explain what has fueled the rise of ESG? And can we just blame this on the millennials? (laughs) I I don't know, Gary. Do you qualify as a
1: millennial? Depends on which millennium you're referring to. (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, I I, I'm curious, Gary. You know, why did you? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I know it's a pittance for you, but why did you dump a thousand dollars into an ESG fund?
0: Because I knew I was going to record this podcast, and I wanted to figure out what it was. <laughs> but, but seriously, it does. It, it it is nice to be able to put your money where your mouth is.
1: Right, and I, I think that's a big part of it. Right, Gary, you you hit it right. And yeah, you know, there's different spectrums out there. We, we, there's investors that, quite frankly, and we we run into this with the companies we work with. That it, it's not that they have a problem with ESG; it's just not their top priority. We might call you know, some of that investor community or some of the wider ESG stakeholders as less invested in the ESG issue. But I think the statistics you just threw out, you know, Gary, you know, shows that. There's a big constituency out there that really believes that this is a very important principle in deciding where capital is allocated. And they have a strong preference of allocating capital to companies that are doing well in the ESG space. And so to that extent, right, whether – Any one of us are believers in what ESG is all about, or whether we're not believers, to some extent, it's irrelevant. I think the the numbers that you threw out, Gary, speak for themselves that there's enough of a very significant share of investment capital that is being driven by ESG criteria. That, you know, whether at the end of the day, you know, these issues prove out to have the types of risk or opportunities that we've talked about today. Whether that turns out to be true or not, in today's world, it the reality of it is if you know, there's a lot of capital out there that you might be able to even access, and I think we're starting to see data that at a lower rate of return that you need to offer those investors than would be the case for companies that are not focused on ESG. And that's because of this growing view that you know companies that are not as focused on ESG, particularly where their competitors are focused on it, present greater risk to investors. And for investors to go ahead and be part of those companies, they expect a premium on that risk return as compared to those companies that are making those investments to address these ESG issues, because there is a belief that their business approach is much more sustainable, not only in the long term, but even in the short term.
0: Brett, after a company decides which ESG issues to focus on and then holds itself out to the world as promoting those issues, Is
1: there a system in
0: place that reviews how well those initiatives are being implemented?
1: That's a really good question, and in the center of some really uh, fascinating global debates, really. And so, the short answer to your question, Gary, is uh, it's a little bit of the wild west out there right now, because really, at the heart of your question, you're asking, you know, what what does good look like, um, and how do you trust companies if they tell you they are doing really well? You know, how do you trust them that in fact they they are doing well? And you know, a lot of this comes back to well, what are the standards, right? What are the things that companies need to do to show that they're performing well let's pick one of the pillars you know and in, in the environmental side what are the measures that we could you know ascertain that a company is doing well versus a company that maybe is uh, you know has a let's say a dirtier supply chain for example? There's a lot of standard setters out there that would point to the criteria that matter. And unfortunately there's not one, there are a bunch of them and none of them have the same criteria that they point to. And so that's one of the areas that makes it a little bit confusing because you know, companies when they report on their performance around let's you know, stick with this pillar of uh, you know environment, that they're speaking to different metrics to some degree than a company even in the same industry, and so that makes it a little bit you know different to kind of track progress and how companies are falling through on their commitments. The other piece here is um, once you get past uh, the criteria, right, in terms of the things you look to to see what what good really looks like, it's just the even the reporting uh, and the reporting of it, right? There's no one standard in terms of you know what companies should be reporting on or how they report on it, and there are some leading standard setters out there, and GRI, for example, is a, a leading standard setter, and I I do think. Probably the majority of companies try to follow out of their guidance. You'll see in their ESG reports when they're talking about a particular issue, they may cite to a GRI standard. Right, which, uh, you know, kind of helps readers follow along to understand you know, the issues that, are, that they're trying to address in their reporting. But long story made short, right, there's no rules anybody has to follow. It's certainly not like some of the disclosures that we know. There's a long set of rules and, are, and uh, approach that everyone understands from an SEC perspective if we're talking about financial or business risk disclosures. These ESG risks and ESG disclosures at this point don't really have that type of regulatory oversight either. Now, we expect that that's going to change very quickly. You know, we see action from the SEC. We see action from some of the standard setters that are calling for kind of a global standard, and we see action from the EU. And so I it's my own view that in the very near future, on a lot of these issues but certainly not all of the issues that matter in ESG but on some of the big ones we're going to see some regulatory action that for the first time right will set some standards around what companies have to report and how they report it
0: today what kind of information do companies put in their ESG reports
1: and I think uh, you know the the biggest focus by far, as we look across the, um, the globe with companies that are reporting on ESG matters, is environment. that That seems to be the big kid on the block. Everyone really is leaning into ESG um, has some type of environmental commitment. And it's interesting to to see on that, right? The, if if you're deep into this issue, you understand that there's different aspects around you know the environmental pillar and often referred to as scope 1 scope 2 scope 3 emissions right scope 1 is the emissions that essentially you're burning yourself scope 2 emissions is starting to look out to members of your supply chain which essentially if you're you know if you're building a product or a service right that you're really the cause it's driving a lot of those scope 2 emissions and scope 3 is really looking to the emissions uh, for example the greenhouse gases that are end to end from a product's life cycle so I share that because some companies may just report on scope one, right? They're saying, hey, we consume this much energy, X share of that is clean, Y share of that is not, here's our commitment to change that ratio, et cetera. And that's all they talk about is scope one, right? Other companies uh, are going clear to scope three. So that's just one of example of probably I don't know, 20 or so we could list here, which we don't have time for, right? But but shows because there is no standard, companies kind of pick what they want to report on that reflects what they believe is the commitments that they're making to the public. But it also shows that it can be quite different from one company to another. But that's an example of the types of disclosures that we see.
0: Thanks, Brad. And this is a good time to segue into what this means for tax professionals, Matt, could you explain what role tax plays from an ESG
2: perspective and how it is used to measure ESG behavior? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Gary. We really see tax intersecting with ESG in in two key ways. The first is tax and, and tax policy as a driver of sustainability, and the second is tax being used as a measure of sustainability. And if we look at tax as a driver of sustainability, we think about the ways in which government tax policy is incentivizing environmentally or socially responsible behavior. Things like the investment tax credit, the the production tax credit, Section 45Q, all providing incentives for, you know, quote unquote, green behavior. Governments are providing these incentives and companies are utilizing them as part of their strategy to meet their ESG commitments, whether it be on the environmental side or the social side. But thinking about tax as a measure of sustainability, if we take a step back and we look at the big picture, the stakeholders here that are focused on tax matters in the context of of the overall ESG agenda, they're primarily focused on, on two big things. One, did you pay your fair share of tax? And two, were you transparent about it? Now, fair share of tax, we should we should put that in quotes. I'm not a big fan of that term. As tax planners and tax professionals, I think we certainly see the complexity that lies behind the amount of tax that that any corporation pays. So that term fair share of tax can can be somewhat of a, a loaded term. In any event, I I prefer to to think about this in the sustainability context, considering, you know sustainable tax practices and and the extent to which your tax planning and your tax strategy are, are sustainable in the long term. So, you'll see that through the ESG standard setters that are out there, the rating agency criteria that are out there, they're essentially all aimed, again, back at this idea. Are you paying your fair share and were you transparent about it? Now, the specific standard setter guidance that's out there. Gets much more granular than that, but that's the direction that they're aiming. Matt, what information
0: about an organization's tax strategy do standard setters and rating agencies typically look for in an ESG report?
2: One of the issues we see today is that rating agencies are not necessarily capturing all of the public data that's out there about a particular company and their tax strategy because they're looking to the ESG report and not finding all of the data there. I know it sounds simple, but one thing many companies are benefiting from is providing information about either their tax strategy or governance or tax payment data, should they choose to make that public, in a way that's easy for the public and the rating agencies and shareholders to access, organizing the data in a way that's more easily digestible and understandable to the public. But to your technical point and to the technical question here, right? What are the rating agencies or standard setters specifically looking for in the tax strategy? Well, I think there are a few common themes that we see repeat across various standard setters and and rating agencies. Just to run through a few of those, starting with a clear articulation of the core values and principles that the company follows, they often are looking for a confirmation that the C suite or the board essentially somebody to whom the head of tax reports and is responsible to, is in fact involved in the development of the organization's tax strategy. They're looking to see whether the tax strategy properly defines the company's tax risk appetite, how much risk are you willing to take with respect to the tax positions the company takes. They're looking for a commitment to transparency, particularly with respect to interactions with tax authorities And a clear articulation of certain key tax planning items, right? So what is your approach to transfer pricing? What's your approach to tax incentives or special tax regimes? They're often looking for a commitment to not invest in tax haven jurisdictions without substance or not engage in transactions that lack commercial substance. But, Gary, I'd I'd note that today we're even seeing a shift in the way that investors are looking at this issue and the the information that they are, in fact, asking for, really shifting away from merely having a a high-quality tax strategy to what I would call an attitude of, okay, prove it. Right. The big news story here, probably nine months ago now, was Norges Bank, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, divesting from a number of of companies for a lack of sufficiency in their approach to tax matters. Now, what was remarkable about this wasn't that the companies that they divested from didn't have a public tax strategy. In fact, they did. But the issue that Norgis Bank pointed out and, and had a problem with was that there was insufficient evidence that there was governance and controls in place that would enable the company to, in fact, live out the strategy that they say they've committed to. We're seeing the same shift in the rating agencies, indicating that they're going to increase their focus on the qualitative measures of tax sustainability and not just the existence of a strategy or a certain statement within the tax strategy.
0: Matt, you mentioned that tax can be a measure of sustainability, but you also mentioned tax as a driver of sustainability. Can you talk a bit more about that and some of the opportunities we are seeing in the market for tax to align with an organization's overall ESG strategy?
2: Yeah, certainly, Gary. I think we mentioned earlier how government policy is incentivizing government tax policies, incentivizing certain behavior. We see this most clearly in the renewable energy space, right? With wind and solar and the investment tax credits, the production tax credits that are available. On the social side as well, we see things like the low income housing tax credit, the new markets tax credit, qualified opportunity zones. Now, typically, the project developers that develop these wind, solar projects or the real estate development in underserved communities that are generating tax credits by developing those projects, they typically don't generate sufficient income to utilize those tax credits. So, investment structures are set up to allow companies that have sufficient income to be offset by tax credits to invest in these development projects and receive those credits in exchange for their investment. Oftentimes, this is a way for corporations to invest in green power generation, for example, allowing your company to meet environmental targets that perhaps have been set as part of your overall ESG commitments think about, you know, a software company is not necessarily going to go out and build their own wind farm. But these types of investment structures allow them to invest in clean Mm. power generation without having to build their own. One of the other big areas we see here is is with respect to global supply chains. As companies make various environmental or or social commitments like decarbonization, reduction of water usage and manufacturing, or elimination of forced labor in their supply chain, this leads to the need to restructure global supply chains. As you know, that's got major tax complications globally, both in the local countries where multinationals are operating, but also, you know, we think about for U.S. headquartered multinationals, there are significant U.S. tax implications of restructuring your global supply chain. Think about subpart F income, guilty, etc. cetera. This also touches trade and customs finance IT systems, legal operations, transfer pricing. All of this is impacted by a restructuring of a supply chain that's flowing through multiple jurisdictions. And the the tax function really has a a central role to play in designing a new supply chain and, and implementing those changes.
0: The past decade has seen an explosion in the complexity of global tax systems and hence global tax planning. And this is on top of what was already a Byzantine system of international taxation. Matt, how do you see the rise of
2: ESG impacting the way companies engage in tax planning? Well, Gary, you've got it right. The world is certainly getting more complex. But I'd say if we take a step back and we return to this big theme we discussed earlier, that stakeholders are concerned about companies paying their fair share of tax and being transparent about it, we really see a trend stretching back well beyond the past 12 or 18 months where ESG is really the buzzword you hear everywhere you turn. If you think back to the start of the BEPS project uh, all the way back in in 2013, think about BEPS 1.0, we see a similar effort to ensure companies are paying their fair share of tax. With the BEPS 1.0 project, the, the focus really was on eliminating base erosion and profit shifting and the ways that was leading companies to not pay their fair share. So here, as ESG and sustainable tax are increasingly a focus for finance teams, I think it's really an extension of the same theme that we're talking about. You see it in the commitments that standard setters are are looking for, calling for companies to commit to not invest in tax haven jurisdictions without substance or to not engage in transactions that lack commercial substance. So in many ways, Gary, I, I think the shift in tax planning has already occurred, or at least it was a trend that was already in process as companies respond to BEPS 1.0, the effort to align profits with value creation and ensuring uh, sufficient DEMPY substance, for example. Now, in the process of companies looking at their tax strategy with this sort of increased focus with this ESG lens here, Will companies decide in doing that that they need to have a major overhaul of their global structure? Maybe. We've worked with some companies that in the course of evaluating their tax strategy in light of investor requests and and the guidance that they've reviewed, have decided that maybe they're in a, a tax position that's too aggressive or is no longer in line with the company's overall risk appetite. But I'd say in many instances, we're helping companies, we're working with them to do benchmarking, understand where they sit with respect to their peers based on the rating agency criteria that's out there, the standard setter guidance that's out there. And they're deciding that they're, in fact, happy with the existing tax strategy and and perhaps just need to do a better job of communicating that tax strategy and the good governance that they have lying behind it to their stakeholders.
0: Today, setting and complying with ESG goals is primarily a voluntary exercise, but can we expect a legislative push from the Biden administration and from Congress in the near future with respect to ESG policy?
1: yeah, definitely, gary. and we're and we're seeing that already, right? Not just the Biden administration, but globally, certainly europe and and now the United States seems to be taking the lead on that issue in terms of uh, governments and regulators getting involved in, in ESG matters and identifying you know what minimum standards are and what reporting needs to take place. Certainly, the Biden administration uh, has very heavily pushed ESG issues from the beginning of the administration, including directives to all organizations at the executive level, right, that they would focus on equity in terms of guiding the things that they do. We saw this in the proposals from the administration and the American Jobs Act and in all the other proposals that are coming out, very heavily ESG focused, you know, providing significant incentives for clean energy, for example. Example, you know, carbon capture credits, right? Extending some of the credits Matt talked about in, uh, in clean energy investing to make them refundable credits—that should really change the tax game as well, right? As as tax professionals, we should be watching that one. If those are direct pay credits rather than you must have a tax liability to benefit from them, that could really change how those deals are structured from a tax standpoint. So we see across the administration, right, a a very heavy focus on ESG matters. I think a couple of key ones to point out as we think about this from a tax perspective. And the first one is the direction that the administration has asked the SEC to go. And with our, our new head of the SEC, that is directly where they are going, which is to provide very clear guidance as to what ESG issues are relevant to investors. And that is because there's a belief that ESG is critically important to investment because it does speak to this sustainability issue and that focus is going to be largely on the environmental side. And so the SEC has already signaled, we're in the middle of a public consultation now, that they will be developing rules and guidance for mandatory disclosure around environmental matters in in this overall ESG initiative. And they will begin to tackle some of the issues around the social side. In particular, they've signaled that they will be addressing equity at the board level. Um, So We know that at a minimum, those things will happen under this administration and companies will have to start uh, making mandatory disclosures in that area. Now, we don't expect that the SEC nor that the administration will push any mandatory tax disclosures above what we have today, at least not now. But the thing to watch is that if companies now have some regulatory directive as to what they need to address either in their, what has historically been their ESG reports, or maybe it's in their 10K, but it's the same content. If they now have specific criteria, and there may be even an insurance requirement to that, does that degree of rigor and disclosure spread to the tax issues also? Will there be just as a follow-on or as kind of a halo effect companies who feel that they need to do more around tax payment disclosures and possibly even whatever they say around tax some degree of assurance that they would need to provide to those numbers and the data that they're including there so i think that's something to keep an eye on not saying that's going to happen or anytime soon but uh, i think just what we're seeing coming out of the administration these are issues to watch And I think as many who have been watching this space know, for the first time we've had a bill that's been stuck in committee for some time actually pop out of committee and we actually had legislative language introduced in the house the tax havens disclosure bill, right, that would require companies to do country-by-country country reporting. That is also supported by a few members in the Senate. Senator Van Hollen is a principal sponsor of that bill. Now, it, you know, where, whether it will actually go anywhere in the Senate, uh, you know, TBD, I guess, stay tuned, right? But I do think it's illustrative of the direction of travel and the momentum that is here, that that bill, uh, actually made it out of committee and was passed by the House. So I think there's action to look for from our legislators, as well as watching where the administration is going.
0: Brad and Matt, thank you so much for joining us today, and to all of you for tuning in. This wraps up our ESG discussion for now. As ESG continues to develop in the U.S. and internationally, We'll be here to offer our latest thoughts and insights on the intersection of ESG and tax. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these and other developments. Until our next episode, take care.